A spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited. Hello and welcome to a special episode of Spectator TV. I'm Kate Andrews, the Spectator's Economics Editor, and I'll be your host for the next hour. Staying on top of your personal finances has never been easier. Anyone can buy and sell stocks at the tap of their phone screen, but does smart technology necessarily mean better, safer, and easier planning decisions? And while fintech development has opened up a world of opportunities, what tools are out there for the less digitally savvy? To discuss all this with me and more, I'm joined by Charlotte Crosswell, who is a fintech specialist and currently the chair and trustee of Open Banking. And I'm also joined by Matt Conradi, who is the client advisory at NetWealth. And a big thank you to NetWealth for sponsoring today's episode. So, Matt, let's jump in. And I think, uh, you know, some of our audience out there uh, today is, is going to be well versed in this area, but others are going to be relatively new to the topic. So can you break down for us exactly what fintech is? Yes, of course, Kate. So, I mean, I think fintech is a wide-reaching term that covers a whole host of different areas. Essentially, it's the combination of finance and technology. Mm. So when we think about that, that can mean a host of things. It could be in, say, payments, where technology is really coming to drive down the costs of, of that process. Maybe it's currency conversion. In wealth management, technology is really playing a role in more conventional ways. It might be using video to access people around the country, um, or perhaps we're using it for modelling and, and helping people to understand different outcomes in retirement. But it's, it's a real range of things. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got some new digital-type assets as well, so people will be aware of things like Bitcoin and so on that can be, can be put into those areas. But I think in general we should be thinking about it as how technology can help drive forward Forward, adoption, drive down costs as well for people in the future. Uh, and that's really the role that fintech has to play and what we should be thinking about it in that area rather than perhaps the, the edges of, of the, the, the space. And can you talk to us a little bit about some of those possibilities that fintech has brought to wealth management that previously simply wouldn't have been possible? Yeah, so, so I think you know, the pandemic was a really right. interesting area where not only new technologies got started using, but also where the industry was forced to move forwards as well. So videos, I think, is a really good example. You had advisors that would only ever meet people face to face and would only mm. sign documents digitally, uh, sorry, physically. And now suddenly they're using things like DocuSign or they're using Zoom or Teams to have their meetings and catch ups. And what they found was they could be more efficient. And if they can be more efficient in time, they should be able to deliver their service at a lower cost, which is better for everyone. In wealth management, the other thing where we find, particularly at net wealth, is helping people understand the decisions they're making, visualising things. And this engages more people. Lots of people are completely turned off by finance. There's all this jargon that, that advisors, and we're all guilty of using. They don't know using. where to start. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so you need to start in ways that engage a little bit more. So that might be using a chart that can build up over time to show a range of outcomes to people so they can make more informed decisions. In the past, what would happen is advisor would say, Look, let me help you, I'll deal with it, leave it over there, that's, that's, I'll deal with it, and you come back and check in every now and again. Now people want more information at their fingertips and they can make more informed decisions about that. And I think that's where we should be using technology. It's not about replacing humans and using algorithms for everything. It's about helping those humans that you are working with to be more efficient and those that want to, to gain more information themselves to have more access to that information. It's what the 
internet did in the first place, gave us more access to more, more things. And this is just another layer of that over time. Well, I want to come back to humans versus AI in the fintech sphere. But yeah. first, Charlotte, can you talk to us in terms of that, that issue of accessibility? Can you talk to us a bit more about how fintech is helping people with their personal finances? Yeah, and, and this is what it's all about. You know, it's, when you say to somebody, what's, what is fintech? For most people, and I live in central London, um, most people won't even know what fintech is. And that's a great thing because you don't need to understand what fintech is to be using fintech. And to benefit from it. And there's a really good chance that you don't know it. Um, you know, it's a bit like when you, when, you hail, when you hail your online cab. You don't need to understand the API that goes from that to the payment thing that gets you that cab and you've already secured the payment. You just don't need to know about it. You just need to get from A to B. Yeah, that's it. So I think we have to be careful that we don't use all of these, these acronyms and jargon that people sit there and get scared by it and then don't use it. Because actually what fintech's there to do is make the customer journey easier. Mm-hmm. It's amazing for, for the end consumer. Um, and for small business, and then to sit there and help to digitise for large businesses, the banks, the large financial institutions, to make it easier for them to outsource to technology what doesn't need to be done by humans, and perhaps keep the humans for, for when you do need that more personal touch. Um, so what it does is obviously it gives information at people's fingertips. Um, I was saying, we've got to sit there um, and make people realise why savings is important, you know, how they can use technology to help them through that process, and maybe they do want to speak to someone one day, and maybe they want to use technology another day. But it's really, for me, about making your financial services journey easier, faster, more efficient, more accessible, so that you get a better deal for your finances. Mm. And fintech was really born from 2008, from the financial crisis. And there will be lots of companies saying, no, no, I've been a fintech for 200 years. I hear it all the time. <laughs> um, but actually, it was really born from that, where we saw mm. more, you know, more desire for more transparency, more competition, but as obviously the credit crunch was coming in, a better deal for your finances. Right. And that doesn't matter if you're right at, you know, you're really suffering from the poverty premium, all the way up to, you know, the wealthy, the wealthy individuals. Nobody gets the best deal for their finances. Not anybody. Not myself, not anyone in this room. You know, it's actually about, you know, helping people to understand it and the ease of journey so that every single penny and every pound that they have, they're making it used to the best, the best purposes. Well, to pick up on that point about transparency, to what extent do you think we can trust these algorithms and this technology to make complex decisions about our personal finances? And actually, is it making decisions for us, or is it simply enabling us to have more access to information to make those decisions? And I think we have to be, we have to recognise there are going to be flaws in the system. Right. Um, and you know, and we're here. We've got you know three of us here today. We've got two women. Generally, there is uh, you know there's often bias in the system. Unfortunately, against women, we've mm-hmm. seen this. There's, there's been some very high-profile cases um, where AI is being used to predetermine what they think a woman's credit score should be, perhaps versus their husband, somebody who's got a joint account. And mm-hmm. you know, and we saw this with with instances where the Apple card was launched, where people married, joint accounts, everything was done jointly. And sat there, the woman was being offered ten, ten times less than her husband in terms of the credit limit. And I think it's made it us seems realize. Yeah. It, it, is, it is, because it's often looking at past data, and that's mm-hmm. the problem. When you're using past data to predict the future, and then you're not stopping and saying, hold on, have we got this right? So again, the human element, then we've got to be really careful, because that is going to build more bias into the system as we go forward, not take it away. Um, so I think that's the concern we all have with AI, that we've got to question it. We've got to use it for its best ability, but we've got to have that common sense approach saying, is this right? Why is it giving us those answers? And do we need to take a stop and pause to make sure there's not any type of discrimination 
in the system so we make sure it's fair for all and then we're building on the right data rather than building on poor data. Matt's nodding along. Come on in, Matt. Yeah, well, I, I think as well that's completely the, the, one of the challenges and I think it also is important that we make sure that we use technology in the right spaces at the right times. Technology isn't the answer to absolutely every problem. It's not going to be the panacea for everything. And I think what we've realised, for example, when we think about wealth management, is there are parts where humans, even if the technology got it right, removed all the human biases and presented the information, the human then interpreting that, the, the client, the individual, won't believe it as much as if a human says it back to them. And that they need that support, that, that element. And, and what we need to be careful of is that a few bad experiences don't make people lose complete trust in technology as a whole. Mm. So we hear of the, these, these issues and we need to correct them. Perhaps that's because we're not ready to do that yet. So if we think about investment management, where we do planning and investment management, we use technology to help about planning. But the investment management part, we use a human team because we don't think the algorithm can make that decision. It's, it's always going to be using historic data. It's not going to factor in, it in correctly. And it's certainly not going to give a better outcome. And it probably won't reassure our clients as much as if a human is sitting there and, and dealing with it. So I think it's about finding that balance, not saying we're going all the way over here to technology doing everything and saying that we're going to just, let's just start with dealing some of the really simple problems. It, it's only recently, for example, in, in banking and because of things like open finance that you get a notification of your payment straight away. It used to take two days for a payment to, to appear in your bank account. Yes. Let's solve those simple problems. That's got nothing to do with someone working out what your credit score is. Uh, so I, we're going to come back to the biases built into the system. As said, we're definitely coming back to the, the human element here, but we actually have some questions submitted even before we sat down together. Uh, and people uh, can submit questions now if they're tuning in. Just a reminder to our audience at home or in the office, there is a big text box on Spectator TV. You can submit your questions. We'll get them in real time, and I'll put as many as I can to our panel. But one of the questions that came in uh, before we sat down today was about privacy and about questions around the algorithm. And, and Matt, th this person writing in said, what about my privacy? How can I be sure that fintech companies aren't selling off all of my data? So to points about transparency and, and people being very cautious these days about what's shared, what would you say to that? So I think security of data is one of the big challenges that you need to be aware of. Mm. As a company like Langner Wealth or any new startup, that's something that they're going to have on their risk register. It's going to be the biggest thing they're thinking of because it basically destroys your brand. If you have a breach, it's game over in this kind of business. So there is a lot of focus on it. There's a lot of effort that goes into that area. That's different, though, to someone selling on your data because right. that's, that's a deliberate delivery of that data. And you need to be aware of checking in for that, making sure that happens. You need to understand what the, the business's business model is. If you're getting something for free, free trading, free things. It's not for free. Someone's making money somewhere and are they making it from selling on your data? You need to understand these business models and make sure you're comfortable with that setup. I don't think in a regulated world it's as big a risk as in, in some of the social media areas or so on where they're lacking that, that regulation, but you need to be aware of it um, and you need to make sure that you're dealing with firms that take that really seriously. So again, on the, the scale of um, fintech, you have the, the three guys in a room who start something and we need some of those because they drive innovation and so on. But you also have big businesses that have got really um, stable systems in places that will make sure you're protected from that. And I think we shouldn't conflate the two and get concerned about those, those different parts. Yeah. Charlotte, do you worry about conflation there? And, and also, do you understand the concerns of people at home when they start putting some very personal details, say, into an app on their phone mm -hmm. about their financial situation, about you know, their home address and all the rest of it, that people might start getting a little bit nervous yeah. about how much they're handing over? I mean, I think, yeah, it's, it's the biggest issue we have is mm. how do we bring technology into the 21st century but give people that trust in the data? As you said, data breach is very different to what are you giving away. Right. You know, so many people have said to me, oh, I won't, you know, I won't pay by, I won't pay, pay by credit card. 
you know, I don't want to do that. I don't want to put my credit card number into it, into a website. Right. You know, that same person will use a comparison website to go and perhaps renew their insurance and will give away everything, where <laughs> they live, their age, their marital status, you know, what their, what their income is. And then guess what? A year later, they're getting bombarded by 20, 30 providers who mm -hmm. are sitting there saying, oh, I understand your insurance is, is coming up for renewal. Would you like to talk to us? Um, so I think it's about an education of what are you giving away and where, where is it going? Um, there was, you know, the data reform bill was, is due to come in. It did make it into the Queen's speech. Um, and I think that's incredibly important because what that's going to allow is to give people the, the ownership of their data and ownership of what they want it to be used for, mm. but importantly, when it comes back to them. Right. You know, lots of people talk about so what happens to my data after I die. And it's not such a crazy question, because what is happening to their data? You don't, unfortunately, it's not like you know, someone goes into your estate and, and sort of you know, puts Gosh, your Gosh, I papers. never thought about you know, that. It's going to keep yeah. me up at night. Um, but, you, but can you imagine? You, know, you die, and you don't know. Your data is still, still somewhere out there. Yeah. It's in, in the cloud. So we've got to be very careful that we allow people to give that away so they get a better deal for, for financial mm -hmm. services in their daily lives, and it becomes easier, but they take it back. They understand what it's being used for, and right. it's only being used for that one piece. And this is where we talk about open banking to open finance to, to smart data. It is really about that. It's sharing your data so you get a really great experience, and then you bring it back, and you have you know, time limits on it. And that's what's really important, what's going to come through with the data reform bill, is to give this panacea of smart data. And we've seen this in other countries, this smart data legislation that is going to protect that. We're then going to have a huge issue around education or of when, when people are going to use that or not. But over time, we have to build up the trust in this. Um, so we're not just worrying about data breaches. It, we're giving the control back to the consumer and the business. And on that point about control, Matt, how much control do people have if they want to use fintech, if they want to use these apps, if they want to use this more savvy version of banking? Um, do you get to say, actually, I'm going to draw my line here. This is as much as I want to put forward. Obviously, there may be ramifications for how much you can get back. But to what extent do people really have that control over their data? I mean, I think every company kind of wants to gather as much data as right. possible, and that's their starting point. And so some will be really strict in saying you have to give me this, this, and this. We have to remember in some practices, there are certain bits of data. As a regulated company, you have to gather. You mm -hmm. have to have this information. And so you need to think carefully about the proliferation of, of that data and how many accounts you go and open. I speak to some people who have opened a bank account absolutely everywhere. They're chasing deals and all these kinds of things. That has a consequence. Again, you're giving away information. So you need to think about that a little bit more. Um, but, but I think... The, the smart providers will understand that this is a, is a, is a consequence and, and at least they will educate people about what you're going to get back in return from this. So if we're doing a, a retirement planner, we're going to help them understand. I can't tell you what your future retirement might look like unless you tell me how old you are today and how much income you need. But I don't need your national insurance number. And if right. someone starts asking you for your national insurance number, then you need to put your alarm bells. And a lot of this is going to come to education. And I'm really amazed, actually. You, know, you get the, some people at one end who are really worried about everything and, and they, they, they won't delete, they'll delete everything. And they're sort of, they're, they're, I guess, the same people that have been worried about security in lots of different ways. And we get other people who will just send you, like, we get, unsolicited emails come into us sometimes with just a whole list of someone's assets and, and background which is really helpful because then we can have a really thoughtful conversation with them but it's amazing to me sometimes that they've just deliber deliberately delivered all that information to an email address right and, and that's, a, that's an interesting question about it again it comes back to where you use technology should we be doing this in secure messaging systems all of those kinds of, of points as well so thinking a little bit more about when you give out information and providers being better at saying this is what you're going to get back this is your reward because actually there's value to the information you've given it we, we're going to take some value from that so i'm going to give you something for that value 
Mm. Uh, just a reminder to our uh, viewers at home and in the office, uh, you can submit your questions in the big text box on Spectator TV. They'll come to us in real time. I'll put as many as I can to Charlotte and Matt. And we already have some coming in, which is great. Uh, this is another question that was submitted before we sat down today. Um, just asking because I've never been 100% sure. But how do fintech companies make their money? And is it different to normal wealth managers? Is it through data mining? Matt, maybe uh, on the same topic, this one's for you. Well, so for us, we, we make our money in the same way as a normal wealth manager. So we charge uh, a fee for managing investments, if you mm -hmm. want to do that. It's a percentage charge. Um, it's much lower than a traditional wealth manager. That's where the technology has helped us. And for advice, we charge for a fee when you need that advice. So technology in that business model is, is all it's doing is helping us do it in a way where it's more transparent and lower cost. There are other business models out there where they, they make their money in different ways. So um, you might do securities lending on, on a, an exchange traded fund, and that's how the, that provider can give a much lower cost of, for their fund. Um, you might have something uh, similar in, in some of these free trading setups as well, where they're providing liquidity and, and that's a way that they're going to make, make money from it. So you have to be careful and cognizant. I think go back to that point I made before. There is nothing for free. If you're getting a service for free, you've got to question that. I mean, it's been a question in my mind about banking in the UK for a long time. Yeah. You get a service supposedly <coughs> for free, but you are going to pay for free. it elsewhere. Yeah. And that's it. And I think so. You know, I think there's, there's new revenue models that might be great and they might really work for you as a consumer, but you need to be cautious about those different parts. So, again, it goes back to this idea of that there's a whole range. Fintech doesn't, we can't give you one answer to that question. We're quite traditional in the way we charge. Other providers might be quite different. Right. Well, let's move on to something we've been talking around. And, and you know, let's just address it. The role in an ever digitalized world of financial advisors. Uh, Charlotte, have they become a luxury rather than a necessity? <laughs> Um, and I think, well, I think it's, it's again, it, it becomes different to, to how you're going to interact. Some are very, very confident and don't trust the humans. They say, well, actually, I want to have much more information at my fingertips. I want to use everything online. Other people want to sit and take all that information, but then go and speak to someone right. and get that advice so they take control. Others want to outsource the whole decision. And so I think it's, it becomes sort of where, where people are comfortable and where do they personally need the help. And we do have to be careful, and we, we've all talked about during the pandemic, of you know, the older population who didn't have access to many times online or weren't comfortable using it, and suddenly found that that person had gone away. Right. Um, you know, we, we, in the race for technology, we mustn't forget that we're not excluding people. I can talk about financial exclusion, not financial inclusion. Um, but in terms of you know, advisors, is it a luxury? No, it's not a luxury. It's whatever you need it to do for you to help you understand it. And the, the, the beauty we have now is there's information out there that you can get. I would encourage everybody to go and find uh, more information about it to make sure you're, when you're sitting there and making that phone call, well, well, why are they advising me on that? You know, what's their return? You know, what are they charging me? Mm. Um, and is that the best deal I have? So I think you know, what we're going to probably see for some time is that perfect intersection, really, where there's more information if you want it, um, but if you're not comfortable with it and you need someone to talk to, you still need to have that person there. And I think that is going to be important if we're going to bring everybody into, into this new world. And uh, it's a bit like the access to cash debate. A lot of people say we must continue to have access to cash. A lot of other people are saying we must have access to cash, but we've got to help people in the transition away from cash. And other people say, well, why do I, you know, why do we, should we accept cash at all? Mm. Because again, you know, we're, at that, we're at that strange sort of moment at the moment, especially in, 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 uh, with financial advisors, where they have, you know, from some people, an incredibly important role. Um, and, you know, they've seen that it's an absolute necessity, whereas for others, they just use them quite wisely to sort of challenge what they have 
and then go and get that final piece of information as well from, you know, from the person that perhaps they want to hear from that they can phone up. Matt, one can never know just how far technology will advance and maybe it really will be the case that these algorithms and these apps uh, can do equal if not more than what a, a, a financial advisor can do. But for now, there does seem to be a bit of a sweet spot if, in your, if you're in a position to do it where uh, the fintech is helping you have more access in real time to, to the information you want. But that human touch, that human advice, uh, which is still much more creative, uh, is, is going to be beneficial. And I think it's about picking and choosing when you need it. So, right. so what we find is that a lot of our clients don't use advice on a day-to-day -day basis. So the business models change there. That's something to firstly be aware of. Traditionally, what advisors or what uh, businesses did is they forced you to have advice. Pay for this ongoing fee for this great service I'm going to give you. And actually, people didn't need it. Most years, the advice was stay as you are. Um, what we want to do is to pick and choose it when you need it. And it's not about demographics necessarily. It's, it's, there's people that want advice that are young. There's people that don't want advice that are old. Um, it's about turning points in life. So when you're going to pay off your mortgage or when you're mm -hmm. going to about to retire, most people at that point want a conversation in, in, in to some degree at that point. That's why there's still call centers at banks and things. I can do everything online, but sometimes you want to speak to someone. And I think making sure you have that access is, is really important. Um, and I think sometimes just to sense check it. So you might have got all the information, read it all, made your decision. We have loads of calls with clients that say, I'm thinking about doing this. Is it the right thing? And then in complex areas particularly, so let's say you're thinking about retirement and you've got your lifetime allowance around your pensions as well to consider, that might be a moment where it's just worth sense checking before you do something that can make a, a big difference to your outcome. And that's probably worth paying for as well. And I think that's the other bit we should get to. Sometimes paying for that makes a lot of sense. What you don't want to do is pay for services you're not using or pay too right. much for services that aren't giving you the value back as well. And what we had pre-fintech was all the banks were centralising. They were doing everything. We, I can do it all for you. And they were charging a healthy fee along the way for each different part what you need to do is disaggregate that and that's what fintechs really helps and said okay this is the right thing for payments i don't need advice about that i can do that this is the right thing for my currency conversion this is the right thing to pick my insurance but if i'm going to do a mortgage maybe i want to speak to, speak to a mortgage broker if i'm going to talk going to drawdown maybe i want to talk to a financial advisor being able to pick and choose that's what we should be using for and if those humans use technology to drive down the cost of their service and increase their efficiency then we should that's how the virtuous circle comes that's how we get the better outcome from all of this we can't have a conversation about wealth management and personal finance today without talking about the big elephant in the room. Inflation, the prospect of rising interest rates, and the fact that things are not stable right now. They're, they're constantly changing. And Charlotte, in this current very volatile economic climate with the cost of living crisis, inflation rising, the prospect of further rising interest rates, how susceptible is, are these fintech businesses models to these massive changes that are happening very, very quickly? Well, and I think it's, you know, just taking a step back on, on your question there, it's also, you know, what's that going to mean to people who have got such, so used to a yes. ultra low interest rate environment and have never lived through a high interest rate environment? Yeah. Um, now, I, you know, I grew up in a very, very high interest rate environment. Um, and as a result, one, when even at the age of 16, when I went down to the local town and chose the logo that I wanted and walked in to see the bank manager, like you could back then, um, and you're sitting there saying, how much are you going to pay me for my current account? How much am I going to get in my interest rates? And I was like, Amazing! Right? I get free money. It's fantastic. Um, and then when it came to taking my first mortgage, you were so careful at getting that best deal because it was you. Know, these were not you. Know, these were not point one percent moves. These, these are were big figures. Two, three, four, five percent. You. Know, I think my first mortgage was eight, ten percent. Yeah. Um, you. Know, so, so for those of us who've grown up with that background, I think we're much more attuned to this. What worries me is a lot of people have never done that and have not seen this coming.
Mm -hmm. um, they haven't seen the cost of living going up. They haven't experienced a, a higher interest rate environment. Um, and this isn't the days where you could make a bit of money in your current account you know, to sort of offset perhaps you know, some of those, those increased bills because we're not really seeing that now. Um, to, a, to your point, you know, what we're seeing is obviously the banks can't just get, you know, they can't pay the interest rates out on that and bring their costs down here and make less money. So what you're seeing is obviously those interest rates are still coming low, but guess what? Mortgages are going to potentially go up. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's, it's again, this is, comes around education and is this the pivotal moment for fintech to actually say this is when it really does come into its own? How can you make that every penny work for you? Um, so this, this summer, you know, from banking, we're bringing in something called sweeping. And sweeping, which has been allowed, a lot of people do it within their own, their own bank, this will allow people to get paid into one account and sweep automatically or at a predetermined time or a predetermined amount into another account. Convenient. Hold, right? Really convenient. Um, you know, and it's not, this, isn't, this isn't simple. Uh, this isn't, this isn't uh, complicated. It's really easy. Um, now, we, have, we hide behind something called VRPs, which is variable recurring payments, which will put everyone off. But when you look at it, it's, you know, why wouldn't you get paid your salary into one account and then automatically transferred or transferred however much you want to into a higher interest rate paying account? Mm. You know, in, in Australia, a lot of people use offset mortgages. Not, not really used here offset mortgages. So people have this effectively as dead money sitting in an account that's not doing anything. Right. And the banks probably don't want it either. They're not making any money from anybody. So I think we've got to get people more, more informed over this. And I wonder as we go through what's invariably going to be you know, a tough winter mm -hmm. um, with increased energy, uh, increased interest rate environment, that how can we use this moment to help educate? And I think the best fintechs will be the ones who make that user journey really easy. Um, what we have to be a little careful of, this comes back to your sort of comment on financial advisors, is that you know, who's educating the educators as well? <laughs> you know, every, is every financial advisor completely savvy on, on what's out there? Um, no offence to anyone in the audience who's a financial advisor. Um, but you know, we have to make sure that they understand it and are they giving the best advice? Because some of them, again, won't have grown up with this either. Um, but this is, this is the moment for fintechs to shine, you know, making sure the, the information's available, but also just make sure people don't use those decisions to quickly move between right. if they're then locking up their finances to something where they don't realise they're doing it. Right. And so I said, education is key for me. And you know, I, I personally love the fintechs who spend loads of time on their user journey, looking at the interface for it, giving people the information, but making it really simple. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, you know, that hopefully will be the ones that went out. Uh, Matt, uh, Charlotte points out there that there are now generations of people who are not used to the concept of, of rising interest rates. Yeah. And a lot of these people will be in their late 20s, 30s, 40s. Maybe they've bought their first home. Um, you know, they're looking to renegotiate their mortgage. Um, they're not people who, you know, the biggest purchase anyone's usually ever going to make is going to be their home. They're very sensitive about it, but they're also new to this. What kind of advice would you give them? I think it's really a good time to take a step back and think about all of your goals, what mm. you're trying to achieve. You're right, this is an environment as well that I think even in, in investing, loads of people haven't been through it. And even older people that they've started investing, thinking about their pensions, maybe it was done by their companies, they've moved into it. They sat in an environment where basically whatever you bought 
went up pretty much and they've thought I'm an absolute hero I'm good at this I know what I'm doing and now they're starting to experience that and we're finding lots of people coming to us saying I don't know what I'm doing and I need some support there um, I think what they need to do is take a step and think about those goals those objectives and how to balance it so you're going to feel your mortgage price is going to go up and that's going to be painful but what you need to make sure is that what you don't do is sort of rob Peter to pay Paul and you don't stop making pension contributions because that's going to have a big impact on that other goal it's balancing these things that really matters and you need to decide is it some of your discretionary spend it's some of your savings that need to go how do you balance those different parts and and I think fintech can help with that advisors can help with that it is about education people understanding those choices where technology can come in is it can visualize that trade-off for you so if we're in our retirement planning tools for example i can say to you look if you turn your pension contributions from 300 pounds a month into 100 pounds a month in order to pay your mortgage this is the impact this is what it's going to cost you in 30 years time mm -hmm. that's pretty powerful because it in 30 years it will be a big number right. that it will, it will be and you can make a decision about that you have choices they may be tough choices it may mean moving to a, a less expensive house. It, it may mean mm. not going on holiday. You know, those choices will have to be made, but at least you can make them in an informed way. My fear is that people will just see the thing that shouted the loudest that's right. put in front of them. You know, as a world, we're not very good at giving a balance view on every, every information. We talk a lot about the thing that we should worry about, energy bills or, or so on. Um, we need to think about it all. And, and what we don't want to do is find that there's all these unintended consequences that kick in later on. It's a choice, present the information to them, help them make an informed decision. Just a reminder to viewers at home and in the office that you can submit questions uh, through the text box on Spectator TV. They're coming through to my colleagues live. They're being funneled on to me, and I'm going to put as many as I can in about 10 minutes to Charlotte and Matt. So we, we have about 10 minutes before I really want to get into um, some of those meaty questions. Um, before we do that, though, Charlotte, we're talking a lot today about the democratization of personal finance. Um, and you were talking slight, uh, earlier about um, some of the biases that are built in. Um, and I want to talk a little bit more about digital divides. So in many ways, it's fantastic that the individual <coughs> has all of this information at their fingertips, on their phone, all the rest of it. Um, but there are people who have traditionally been excluded from investing. Um, and as we democratize, uh, who are the people we really need to be looking out for? And what areas do you see still that need significant improvement? Yep. And, you know, and there are people who don't even have a bank account, and there'll be Indeed. other people who don't have access to the internet. Right. Um, so in this race for technology, we have to remember that as well, um, that we have to find a method to look after this as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the latest statistic, and mine will be out of date now, was 12 million people in this country have less than £100 in their account. Mm. Um, I mean, that's just a startling number. And if you think of those, your energy bills that are now coming through and you want to fix your rate at this incredibly much higher rate yes. you know, because you know, to offset the, the risk over the winter... You know, a lot of people just don't have that choice in front of them, unfortunately. They can't do it, so it's the short-term gain. They can't, they can't even think about what might happen next. Um, so you know, when I will sit there and you know, nearly all day, every day, I'm working with fintech providers that are looking at speeding this up, and some of them obviously doing you know, incredible work in financial inclusion, I think we do have to just remember that we've got to help every single one of those, as well as the ones, obviously, who are then looking and planning their retirement as well. Mm. Um, you know, and this is where auto-enrolment is so good. It's just sitting there, allowing people to start thinking about the saving for that. Um, you know, we look at the gender gap in, in pensions, where people take a career break and don't think about it and don't save for their pension. I mean, that can't be right. It right. cannot be right. Um, so when we, when we think about democratisation, it's across everything. It's the bias into the system. 
um, you know, based on the, on past data. So it said it, it's life it's life instances like maybe having having a child or taking a career break or looking after a sick parent. Um, and it's also about you know it's bring bring the new generation through who are really tech savvy, but do they really understand that that decision they make now is going to have these untold consequences in the future? And and also importantly for you know maybe the older generation who haven't been as tech savvy as they as they want to be um, and don't really understand it, and making sure that when they're talking to someone that they're making informed decisions as well. So I think when we talk about democratisation, we've just got to consider everybody mm. along that spectrum, not just the people who are, have got you know, huge amounts of investment and wealth transfer and looking at that for the next, you know, their children, but actually looking at it as, as a whole and saying, are we actually doing the very best for each of those generations within, you know, within the different groups um, and different socioeconomic groups? And let's just make sure that we try to level up the education of that um, so that when we come to the next generation, we've set ourselves in the right place. Matt? Well, I think you're completely right, and it's about how you solve that problem. And what I have seen and what's worked really well with fintechs is when they focus on a specific area, a specific problem, a specific demographic, they design for that. So if mm. you want to work with older clients, you need to design in a completely different way right. to a 20-year-old who might be tech-savvy. If you want to work for a 20-year-old who's not tech-savvy, it's completely different to the one that is. So you know, that's what you need to think about and solve those problems. Where we'll, where we'll get it wrong is if we try and get one institution to solve it for everyone, they'll end up with something that works for no one. And this is about how you design whether you use desktops. So older generations generally are more desktop savvy when they make decisions and deal things, mobile for others. But that's an assumption that's made. That's a bias that we're already making. We have to think about the specific parts and the problems that you're, you're trying to, to solve there. If we get that right, and FinTech can definitely help in that area, then we'll, we'll, get, we'll get good solutions for each of the individual problems and we'll bring everyone up. The real area that might fall out in that is those that, where there isn't money to be made from helping that. And that's where government needs to step in and help and support those specific areas. So that might be education. It might be providing more access to digital um, tools and, and even computers and mobile phones and so on to people that need access to that in that environment. We need to think about those people, of course, because in reality, fintechs, most of them are trying to make money for their shareholders. That's what they're, they're trying to do. And they're not probably going to be focused on, on areas where they can't do that. So it might be charity, it might be government, but we need to think about how we can do that as a group, how we can educate people. That's the job of the, I guess, the industry as a whole rather than mm. one individual company. And that safety net is always important because whether it be in fintech or education or healthcare policy and any policy, you're going to have a group of people that fall through the cracks. So that's a very important point to make. But I'm, I'm quite optimistic and interested in this idea that in fintech in particular, there's money to be made by being more inclusive, by bringing more people in. Do, do you, have you found that, that with your experience with fintech businesses, that actually you are more optimistic about the, the future of, of banking for those groups that were historically marginalized when it came to finance um, compared to traditional banking? Definitely. So women's an interesting part for us. So yeah. traditional wealth management businesses have a very poor split between male and female. So they have a lot of male clients and not many female ones. We've got around 50%, either side, 50-50. And that's partly because of the way that we make it more intuitive for them, more able for them to understand it. So we often have conversations with, with female clients to say, look, that's the first time I've actually understood about finance. It's the first time someone's spoken to me in a way where they're wanting me to understand it rather than saying, hey, don't worry, I'll deal with your finances over here. We'll take care of it. And I think that's a, a starting point. That's great for us. That means we get more clients. That's 50% of the population out there that we want as our, as our clients. And I think you just need to be open-minded to that. It's very easy 
for the existing incumbents to stick with the status quo because they're making lots of money in the status quo and it's for us to go and challenge that and take those opportunities. But similarly for us about democratisation of, of investing for people, making people realise that they're all investing if they've got a pension. They don't, may not think right. about it and helping them to deal with that, helping them to make more informed decisions. Again, your traditional insurance company that's getting those pension contributions isn't particularly incentivized to help people to think about it. They want the money to keep coming in, keep being invested. That's how they make their money. We've got to help open that up. And if there's an opportunity for a business to also make money from that, that's, that's, how, to, that's how this should work. That's the future, really. Charlotte? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've certainly seen that. We, we launched in something called an impact report that looks at the impact of, of open banking. Um, and it's incredible, the statistics that people say when they have the information available to them, that makes them more likely to save, and it's increased their savings as well. So even right at that, you know, the lowest level all the way to the highest level, the information there, the education, the access to that is helping people understand their money. And I think that's what we've got to really focus on, is help people that. Um, and that's, you know, as I said, for someone who's got that nest egg and they're you know, planning for retirement or they're planning to, you know, to, to help their child perhaps you know, um, go to university or even buy the boat at their first place, you know, let's make sure they're using it. And then, as I said, let's make sure we bring up, you know, bring up the teenagers who are far more accessible on, on TikTok and may, may have a 30-second um, video that allows them to make a snap decision that may not always be the best either. Um, so I think you, it's, 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 uh, it's fascinating when you see this that you know, two-thirds of the population is using these to help them understand how to save. And so in many cases, it's helping to save the first time. We've seen the fintechs who do the top-ups. You know, so when you pay something, do you want to just have those extra few pence and you put into a savings account? And it's, it's tiny amounts, but when you're doing it all the time, because so many people are obviously using online services to pay, um, you know, that does add up. And I think you know, and that's been incredibly popular for, for the younger population. Um, so I think you know, anything where we are bringing the, the younger generation with us on this journey, I think is, is really important, because they will be the ones who are much less likely to pick up the phone. Mm -hmm. you can you imagine you say to a teenager, oh, you know, if you, between 9 and 1 on a Saturday, if you're too busy during the week, you can phone someone, but you can't do it after 1 p.m. on a Saturday. Well, no. they're not going to do that, right? They're going to sit there and make that decision on a Saturday night or on a Sunday, and they're going to be using the smartphone to do that. Um, you know, layer on the push notifications that are going to come in, so layer on the influence of social media that's going to sit there and, uh, you know, and help them consider those opinions. We've just got to be really careful that we do that. Um, and I think it is. It becomes quite a fascinating time. But let's really use that to say this is what saving does for you. And I think the, the problem is, you know, in this generation compared to where I grew up, we all grew up thinking we want to save for our first house. Right? That's what we wanted to do. We were obsessed about sitting there. How quickly can you save up your deposits? You can go and get a mortgage. And unfortunately now, that's just out of the reach of many, so many, many people, people across the country who want to go on the property ladder. They just can't even envisage it. So what they do is they take their disposable income and they use it because they can't see really the merit of it. So they have the water enrolment and pension. Yep, tick the box, I've done my pension there. Okay, I've got a little bit of savings there. That'll pay for my holiday. Okay, a little bit here. Might use a credit card. Might use buy now, pay later. Um, and we have to consider that, that this is a very different environment now mm -hmm. and people haven't got used to saving and they don't understand it. So this is where fintechs can really play such an important role by showing them what that looks like when they save that, what does that mean? How much are they going to have by the you know, next year? How much are they going to have for retirement? What happens if they did top up this much? What would that give them? And I think this is where you know, younger population will be really responsive to that. Um, and you know, I think that's when you've got the power of technology is doing something really good. The other thing we just need to consider is, is credit records. You know, credit records, unfortunately, you know, have a huge role to play in the evolution of this, but 
are not where they need to be now. Um, so again, some incredible technology that fintechs are using to help people build up that credit score over time to show that they're paying their bill on advance um, on time, that they're sitting there and they're maybe paying their rent on time. At the moment, that hasn't been captured historically. Right. It doesn't, you know, that doesn't contribute to their credit score. But right. why wouldn't it if you're paying your rent on time every single month? It's one you of the biggest expenditures to... you're going to have every month, Correct. especially if you're yeah. living in the South So let's capture it and <laughs> yeah. then slowly help giving people their, their credit score that will allow them then to get a better deal. Mm. Um, I want to jump into questions, and actually this, this first question from Adam is great because it's an area we haven't covered yet, and I think we must if we're talking about fintech. Adam says, uh, do my cryptocurrency investments make me a fintech expert? <laughs> Matt, cryptocurrency, how does this play a role? Um, I think it's unlikely that it makes you a fintech expert because okay. technology, <laughs> the fintech, is, as we discussed, is the technology around it. But um, uh, cryptocurrencies, um, it's, a, it's a really interesting area. The underlying technology behind it is great. Distributed ledgers using the blockchain, that makes a lot of sense. It's going to be used in loads of areas and it's going to be really, really useful. Um, the currencies themselves, we don't think that they play a role in long-term multi-asset investing, which is what we do. We don't think that, that at the moment they are anything more than a speculative asset. Um, I think there will be a role for a digital currency again, but it's probably going to be regulated. It's probably going to be issued by a central bank. Again, it will, that will be helpful. But I think we have, I see far too many people come up to me, so I've bought my Bitcoin and I've made yeah. you know, 30%. Not many people talking about it so much right now. No, it um, hasn't been doing as well, has it? <laughs> it hasn't. And, and, and I think it's not an uncorrelated asset. It has the same drivers about people who are interested in growth, in technology, mm -hmm. in momentum and these things. And, and I don't think that necessarily helps. When you're looking to build a, a portfolio of investments, when you're thinking about that mix, you're looking for the one free lunch there is in investing, which is diversification, true diversification. And so owning Ether and Bitcoin is probably not diversification in that, right. in that regard, right? right? So when we're thinking about currencies, so the dollar has t turned out to be really strong in this environment because it is still the safe haven currency. We're looking at whether fixed income now, now offers value, those, those sorts of things. Um, and I think at the moment, digital currencies, you've got to be aware of what you're going in for them. It's not saving, it's speculation. If right. you want to do that, you, you, it can work. If you ride the trends, there's plenty of examples of people that, that can do that, but you're trading in something, you're not saving for the future, and make sure you get the proportions right about that. So one That's of the things- That's very different. The, the gamble, the bet is very different from these are my concrete savings for my future. That's it, and yeah. that's one of the Both things- Both have value, but they're different. That's it, and I think education, when I think about, well, we talked about educating the younger generation, it's actually quite good for some of them to invest and to lose a little bit and to see that the impact of that, but we need to make sure it's done in a scaled way and that it doesn't, it doesn't actually impact on, on their lives as well. So we help them do that in, in a way that, that works, that, that is protected. Well, Charlotte, you've had some very insightful comments about the younger generation and their completely new and different experience with earning and saving and all the rest of it. Um, what role do you think crypto is going to play? Um, I mean, it, it does worry me, and I, you know, I have a teenager, so I, I hear her come home from school and saying, so-and-so made this, and they, you know, they bought some crypto. And uh, guess what? They're doing this on an NFT. And yes. I look at it, um, and she's probably more cautious than most because um, she hears me talk about it. Um, you know, and you know, as you were saying, you know, it's, it is a gamble. It's not regulated. You know, obviously, the regulator's now stepping in. We're starting to see the process coming through. But anyone who's reading a billboard and you see them on the tube, you see them at Westminster, um, you know, right in front of parliamentarians, they're sitting there saying, come and buy this. There's this magic pot of money that you're going to make. We just have to be really, really careful. Um, and I just think, you know, as I said, particularly the younger generation on this one, and as we go into this winter, coming back to cost of living, and people saying, I'm so desperate, I'm going to try that, 
that's a risky place for you to go. Mm. Um, and if you can't afford to lose it, then you have to consider, you know, how do we educate those people to say, don't think, you know, just like, a, you know, like gambling, that you can put this money in and that's going to sit there and, and sort out your problems. Because mm -hmm. there's a good chance if you're, if you're desperate to be using that, something's gone wrong. Mm -hmm. um, so again, you know, coming back to my point, it, it comes down to how do we use technology to educate people on what they're doing and looking at that, and just like when you're toggling between the portfolio and working that through, what happens when that one goes down to zero? Mm -hmm. right. right. And you know, and does that matter? And is that going to impact on your others? What happens if equities start dropping? Right? What happens when currencies start moving? What happens if cryptocurrency drops? You know, what's the impact that's going to have on your portfolio? And can you afford to lose that? Mm -hmm. And that's the important piece we have to we have to look at. Is really looking at that. Unfortunately, and we are slightly going into this at the moment. Potentially worst case scenario. What happens when you layer on your household bills and you sit there and can you afford a 50% increase in those? Um, so I think what I want to see, as I said, is, is a simple user interface. I want to see people sit there, if they are using speculative investments, that they understand it's a really speculative investment. And please, please don't rely on it because mm. um, there's a good chance you're relying on it. You can't afford to do it. Jim asks, how does an older, non-technical person gain digital skills to take advantage of fintech? I think getting started anyway, the fact that you're attending this webinar okay. and, and yes. you know, wanting to talk about <laughs> Come it. Come join it, Spectator TV, yeah. that's the yeah. first point. It's, yeah. a great, it's a great starting point, though. I think you've got to dip a toe and, and get confidence in it because a lot of this comes down to, to confidence. So I take the video calls in the pandemic as an example. We found a lot of clients, we offered them a video call and they said, no, I, I can't do that, I don't want to do that. When they needed to, when they wanted to talk to their family and so on, they, they started to realise that actually it's, it's, it's doable, they can make it happen. And doing it step by step by step. We saw it with, with payments and online banking and so on again. So I think it's about making small steps. It's not trying to go all the way over here to this sort of super new uh, app-only thing if you, if you don't use a smartphone, but starting on even just communicating by email and then dealing with someone in a hybrid way. So, for example, if we have clients that come into our office, we still use all the digital tools, but just with them and talk them through them and show them how to use them. When we're, when we're going through the modeling, we often have a video call and we get them to share their screen. Now, that can be the first challenge, whether you can share your screen on a phone, but we can talk you through the steps. And that's why I think a hybrid approach is still going to be there for a long time. It's, it's all very well at having built the best user experience and, and a great journey. If people haven't got the basics of that, mm. we need to help get them there over time. And, and that will happen, you know, because even people who think they're tech savvy in their 40s and 50s today, there's a whole lot of new things that are happening with the teenagers that, that they, they won't be tech savvy on and they'll be the same person in their 70s in, in a few generations time. Charlotte? Yeah, so there was an incredible statistic that came out at the beginning of the pandemic that six million people had downloaded their online banking app for the first time in the first month of the pandemic. Six million people. I mean, it's wow. an incredible number. It just um, shows how quickly the pandemic ushered such a new way forward when it comes it, to technology. It was, and that's, getting, you know, that's not going to go backwards. No. And, and a lot of that number is predicted that obviously came from the older population who had never done it before, who were still right. used to going in and paying their checks into the bank talking to someone at the bank window, you know, and then going back again. Sometimes that was their, their daily visit. That's what they did. Um, so if, we, if there's a good thing that's come out of it, you know, they don't have to do that anymore. Um, but, of course, the impact of that is some people still want to do that as well. And what do we do? And we've seen this incredible you know, sort of, um, innovations where the banks have come together saying, well, we can't all have um, you know, a bank branch open in, in a certain town. It's just not cost-effective. The time pressure's on, that, on, our, on our margins. You know, they've come together with these bank hubs where people can go in and still have that face-to-face -face contact. You know, wouldn't it be great if they use those 
and then have a, maybe a digital lesson at the same time. Mm. Um, you, know, it's, you know, yes, it's great for the fintechs to be able to do it. Is it fintech's responsibility to educate everybody across the country that's not digitally savvy to take them to this level, or has there got to be some sort of you know, program on that? So I would love to see. You know, for those who want it and want to be online and want to be able to understand their money in uh, more details and don't just want to wait for that quarterly statement to pop through the, pop through the letterbox, to be able to sit there and, and, and have that access um, and find us at that hybrid there. Um, you know, so they, they've managed to get their online shopping, they're managing to get their online banking, they're managing to do Zoom and Teams calls, and it's incredible, really. We never would have seen that, I think, happen. So it's accelerated this opportunity but let's not sit there and say, OK, now we're going to leave them on their own. It's all fine. Let's give them those tools now to just build a little bit. So Silver Surfers, for anyone knows Silver Surfers, you can go out and you can, you can be a Silver Surfer and go, and go and understand how technology works. But let's build in the financial education that we still don't really provide automatically in this country right. um, and give them those tools to then evolve from that. Uh, Lou says, I'm looking to consolidate with a local wealth manager, but how do I check on their adoption of fintech? What are the right questions to be asking when you're looking, uh, shopping around, shall we say, for a local wealth manager? I think you start by opening them plainly about what do they use in terms of technology for transparency of information. So a, right. a local wealth manager, are they going to help onboard you with paper forms or in a digital way? Are they right. Ask them to see what it looks like when you're a client as well. I think far too many people actually know what the experience is going to be because they'll talk to you all about the planning elements and your finances and they don't give that information. Ask them how they're thinking about the future of technology as well because where you are today is not where you're going to need to be in the next step. And I think that's a big challenge for IFAs, individual providers. We've seen them do a little bit of, of moving already. So historically, an IFA would be your financial planner. They'd probably pick your investments for you as well. Then they do your reporting back to you. Um, and that's and the admin. And, and really mm. what they've realized is that they probably can't do the investments themselves now. So they've outsourced a lot of it to discretionary managers, investment managers. They probably shouldn't be the ones doing the technology as well. So what platforms are they using? Who are they working with as a provider? One individual in your local town probably isn't going to be using the, the latest technology in every, every setup. But are they using the right things? It's not about getting, again, all the way to that perfect solution. But are they thinking about it? Are they dealing with it? Or are they saying, this doesn't bother me because I'm only going to be doing this for another 10 years and then I won't have to adopt technology? And we do see that from a lot of firms and a lot of advisors saying, I don't need to worry about this. It's all good. I'll just carry on with my clients. So you've got to find someone who's a little bit more thoughtful about that. Charlotte, what are the red flags? Um, I mean, what I'd say is think maybe beyond your local wealth manager <laughs> and, the, and, the, and I mean, the one thing that's taught us in the pandemic you don't need to go and see them face to face right. you can do video calls you can go further afield and and make sure that you're getting a range of opinions mm -hmm. on that um, so if you're choosing one and saying it's good enough I'll put up with it have you really done your research have you talked to other people have you been to online forums Trust pilots, you know, it's quite interesting when I, you know, I, I often look at this and say, well, you know, what are people saying? If there's only 10 reviews, you know, there's a good chance it's not going to be representative and good chance there will, there will be some 10 people who've probably got upset with it and have bothered to put it in. But many of these have thousands and thousands of reviews online. Um, so go and do the research, really think about it before you make that decision. And then, as you said, you know, look at the technology they're using and does that work for me? Because mm -hmm. some of it might be great technology, it may just be too advanced. And that suits some people, back to that niche point. Others might want a really simple user interface and that, you know, that, that particular fintech works better for them. Mm. Um, so I think that's important. Do, do the research, 
look around, shop around, and make sure that, you know, as I said, it, it suits you and where you are. Charlotte, we have a question in from Sarah, who is listening to your comments, saying, I'm still worried that women can get a worse deal when it comes to wealth yeah. management. How do I prevent that, and what more needs to be done? Oh, I mean, goodness, we haven't got long enough. I mean, you know, and I, I totally agree with you, Sarah. Um, you know, it's, it, it is scary, the, the bias that is in the system, um, and not just the bias that, that, that is done from, from AI, but just, you know, unfortunately, when you go to IFAs, that they, they will consider a lot of the time that they haven't had the multiple clients. They haven't had the earnings potential that we've seen. Um, you know, we, we're obviously based, you know, we're based here in London. It's very different on the southeast to certain parts of the country as well, mm. where that divide, unfortunately, can be a lot worse. And so right. if you lay in the socioeconomic um, gap as well. And the thing I always find astonishing with, with women versus men, there's a really good chance, and I'm, you know, please don't shoot me down for being biased here and making assumptions, but in many households, the women are making the, uh, managing the household mm -hmm. finances. They're doing, the, they're doing the energy bills, they're looking after the kids, they're paying for their school trips, they're buying the uniform, they're sitting there, um, and they're making really, really big decisions. And then when it comes to things like pensions and investments, they're not. Why is that? Mm -hmm. yeah, so they actually are much more financially savvy than anyone would consider. Um, so I find it quite sad that we're sitting here and still getting a worse deal for, for women when actually they're more than capable to understand that and they're doing it everywhere, any, anyway. So I'd say to any woman out there, you know, don't be scared. Like I said, it comes back to doing, doing your research, go and find that provider that's got a really good proportion of, of female clients and ask them that question. They've only got 5% female clients. Go and find someone else mm. um, and challenge it. Challenge you know, why you've got that. If it's a credit score you're not happy with, go and challenge why that is and make sure you're, you're really making a fuss about it. Mm. Um, so education, you know, knowledge is power. And, and I think that's, that's important. You know, we, we're all sitting around the fintech table, and it's not the most diverse bunch of people either. It's only less than 30% of people working in fintech are female. 1% um, you know, of VC investment um, going into tech firms is going to female founders. So we're not, unfortunately, fixing this problem. We're, you know, it's, it's getting worse and worse. Graduate level, 50% are going in. So what's happening is, is as women come through the career ladder, particularly in tech and finance, they're not sitting there progressing on to management decisions, mm -hmm. unfortunately, in many cases. And that I do find personally very frustrating because I've been talking about it for far too long. Um, and we've got to change that. So you go and sit there, challenge it, start a fintech, be brave, go and solve the problem. Every day I sit there and think of a fintech I'm going to start. <laughs> That's some um, big advice there for Yeah, you, there you are. So, you know, I'll challenge it back. Yeah. <laughs> um, John says when it comes to training, there are financial gaming apps that are available. Are these of any value? Matt? I think they are to help you think about some of the trade-offs and, and the biases that, that can be there. So I think they can also help you understand some of the risks. So if you're using it to say model trading, for example, to understand that, that's a great way as, as a, a junior investor to begin with. I remember doing one at university where I was building a portfolio and you realize quite quickly if you put it all on one stock and it doesn't go up, <laughs> you're in trouble, right? Diversification is, is an education. I think... There are lots of ways we can help. You have to get people engaged to want to, want to use them um, and, and those parts. And it's, again, back to that knowledge is power, information. Can we do it in, in engaging ways, though? So I think the, the games can be helpful for that engagement part because finance, look, personal finance, for the vast majority of people in the UK, just turns them off. They're not interested in it. That's the reality. Yeah. Super important. It's relevant to everyone, but they're not interested in it. 
So can we find ways to make it interesting, um, to, to bring people into the fold so that they can make more informed decisions for things that really matter in the future? So gamification is an option that, that lots of fintechs think about when they're building information. How do you get people to engage a bit more? How do you get them to, to think about their savings goal or, or, or so on? Um, as long as that's being done for the, the right purposes and you get the right outcomes, you don't accentuate biases as well, because right. that's the other thing that can happen in these. You can teach people to make the wrong decisions. Um, but if, assuming that's, that's working correctly, then I think they can be really helpful. Um, we have about five minutes left, so I want to finish on a fantastic question that's come through um, uh, from Jay, who says, I want to ask a broader, more existential question. Okay. Is the democratization of technology entirely helpful? Is there such a thing as too much information? Charlotte, what do you think? <laughs> um, I think there is, yes. Um, and I saw this recently when I was looking at, um, back, back to uh, doing some research in particular fintechs I was looking at, and I saw that somebody just had all this information, this pension provider, and sat there and gave these people a terrible review and said, look what's happening, look what's happened to my investments today. Yesterday they did this, yeah, the day before they did this. And they were trying to make a decision. Do I now exit from those with a penalty fee based on the last week's performance? Gosh, such a short period of time. <laughs> but you and you know, and I hate to say it, when you look at young people who've got you know, who are unfortunately are making these decisions based on really, really small amounts of information and a very short time period for decisions that are going to last 20, 30 years, right. sometimes that's just a bit too much information. So yes, is it great to have information, great to have technology in front of you, great to have a great user interface, but let's just make sure that we sit there and say, you know, again, back to the tooling, that this is what's going to happen. Don't make a quick decision there. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the only thing that worries me a bit. Can you imagine the push notifications that come through saying, <laughs> guess what, you know, your investments did this today. Right. They've outperformed these other providers by this. And, you know, and those ones maybe can allow, you know, be allowed to, uh, to advertise and somebody makes that quick decision there. So let's just find a way to protect against the short termism because I think that's the biggest risk we have. Matt? Yeah, I think information is helpful, but context is key. Um, so the reason we decided to build a hybrid wealth manager is that the human can help give context. So we can try and put context around information. So we can try and help you understand if it's down. So in our app, for example, where the portfolios um, are, are showing the total return, we show whether you're in a normal range. And that normal range has negatives and positives because in every investment there's normal ranges and it changes on time periods. We show if you're in a less common or, or an extreme outcome as well. But then we've got a human there to ask. So if someone right. says, OK, I want to sell out of my portfolio, they can have a conversation first and we can then just help them think through the different choices, make decisions. If I gave them a bunch of tick boxes online, that's probably not going to help them. Yes, I've signed all the statements. I want to get out. But you can <laughs> explain to them why it matters or, or the context of the markets around that. I don't think technology is ever going to solve all of those different parts. To give the exact right context to the right person at that moment, you need to talk to them and find out. So why are you worried about it? Are you worried about it because you were planning to use this money to buy a house in, in two years' time and it's down 5%? Okay. But actually, that might still be okay. Perhaps the best thing to do is to sit and wait. Or maybe the right thing is for you to sell out because you shouldn't have been there in, in the first place. Right. So I think it's about giving information, giving context, and using humans when it's the right to help interpret that information. So and dare I say, point out the most important information in what is just an unending um, you know, list of data that you can access now. Exactly. So I don't think we should rein back the amount of information. We're not the right people to decide where inf how much information should be, but we've got to 
keep being better at giving more context, helping people, and keep giving easy access for people to get that help and support along, along the way. Yeah. Well, that's all we have time for today. If you missed some of that live discussion, the full podcast and video will be up on the Spectator channels next week. And if you still have unanswered questions, please send them to Matt and his team by visiting their website. They would be very happy to answer those for you. A really big thank you to NetWealth again for sponsoring today's discussion and making it possible uh, to do this on Spectator TV. And a special thank you to Matt and Charlotte for your amazing advice. Uh, I'm Kate Andrews. We so appreciate you tuning in this afternoon, and we hope that you'll join us again next time.